The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Today's passage is Exodus 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. 
Good morning, everyone. Please bow with me in prayer. Our great God, we do thank you this morning for our mothers. We thank you for all the troubles they went through for us. We ask that um, you would make us faithful to um, care for them, um, to honor our parents. And Lord, for mothers who who are in the middle of the act, who have young children, uh, who are weary, I ask that you'd refresh them. And Lord, I ask that their husbands would um, support them in in the task and that um, together they would... um, it would be a, a solid parenting team. And Lord, where that's, where that's not an option, um, where the husband is absent or, or not a believer, doesn't have the same vision for raising children in the Lord, I ask that you would endow those mothers with extra strength, with great grace from your throne. Sustain them. Meet them in their times of tears. Refresh them with your word. Give them courage and hope and joy. And Lord, we know that for some women, today is a hard day. It's a day where they meditate on on lack or loss. And for those women, Lord, I ask that they would find in you their sufficiency I pray that would be true for all of us, that we would not be defined by the relational work you have for us to do, but our identity would be firmly grounded in you, in Jesus Christ. I pray that whether or not we have physical children, that we would remember our place in the family of God, that we would know we are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters to each other and we would take those relationships seriously and we would treasure them and they would be a great blessing to us. Lord, we also want to remember in prayer this morning Nancy Formisano and I ask that you would meet her in her time of pain. I ask that you would relieve her suffering and that she would have um, clarity of mind to to think about your goodness, to see the goodness of Jesus Christ, to cling to that. I pray, God, that your gospel would shine very brightly for Nancy. And Lord, as we turn to your word, these are, um, these are words that, that might feel dark on the surface or strange, formidable. I ask that you would meet us in these words with your mercy, with your grace, I ask that we would see Jesus Christ and that you would change us by your spirit. We ask this in his name. Amen. So in 1842, Edgar Allan Poe published the dark short story called The Mask of the Red Death. And the gist of it is that there was this deadly plague sweeping across the land. The Red Death, it was known for the incredible speed with which it ended life by profuse bleeding through the pores. Now instead of trying to intervene, the ruler of the land, the calloused Prince Prospero, he decided to simply leave his peasants to their fate. So he invited a thousand noble people into his 
extensive and impenetrable and amply supplied fortress, and they were just going to wait it out. Within those walls, the nobility gave themselves over to ignorance and bliss. And after about six months of that, Prince Prospero gave an extravagant masquerade ball. And the music and the merriment and excesses of all kinds were still going strong when at the stroke of midnight, a new guest walked into the room. And his costume was in extremely bad taste. It looked like grave wrappings. And the mask itself looked like the face of a corpse. And to top it all off, there were streaks of red across his face resembling blood. Now, Prince Prospero had an appreciation for the bizarre, but this was too much. So he commanded the figure to reveal his identity and to leave at once. But instead, the figure began to move swiftly through all the halls of the party. And when the prince finally caught up with this mystery guest and confronted him with his dagger, the figure turned and looked Prospero directly in the face. And he fell backward, dead. The crowd then tackled this intruder. But what they found was only cloth in their hands. The costume had been empty. And they all met their demise by the red death. I think what makes this story so terrifying is the notion that there's going to be a day of reckoning for all abuse of what we've been given and and for all callousness and all presumption. For those who have used the weak, for those who have neglected the troubles of others, they will be found out. There's, there's no place to hide. And also at a subconscious level, I think that this, this story hits on like we all know that we have lived for self. We know that we have, in some sense, positioned ourselves as gods on the earth. And we're kind of happy to be intoxicated with that illusion. But in the end those who are so keen to expose anyone who would crash their party are, in the end, exposed themselves. Now, while the other guests in Poe's story were, they started to feel dread fairly quickly as the figure appeared, Prince Prospero only expressed anger to the very end. And here in Exodus 7, we're going to see that Pharaoh, in his pride, is likewise a ruler on a collision course with judgment. And it's a judgment that's fittingly marked with blood. So if you've ever wondered if workers of injustice could hide from the consequences forever, or if you've ever wondered if your own deeds could be simply overlooked by a holy God, this passage is going to help us to meditate on those things. In chapter 5, we saw that Pharaoh unleashed cruelty, further cruelty on the Hebrews, punishing them for even the thought that they could get out from under his thumb. And he also gave Yahweh the equivalent of two middle fingers, refusing to even acknowledge him or his messengers. So now the action really ramps up. And we're going to see that God is in the business of exposing his enemies for what they really are. God is going to save his people by humiliating the proud and by establishing his dominance over the sources of self-sufficiency that his enemies cling to. And we'll see that far from being just an eerie story of blood, that's actually a source of very good news. So our scene opens not with proud Pharaoh, but actually with two humble and aged men 
one a shepherd and the other a lifelong slave. And their very return to the presence of the king of Egypt after the events of chapter 5, that would have been an insult to Pharaoh's dignity and probably would have sent him into a rage. Which is why Yahweh's words in these first five verses are really important. God is giving them assurance that Moses, you are going to have the weight of God himself in Pharaoh's eyes. And Aaron, you are going to have the effectiveness of a prophet. And they're instructed to tell, not ask Pharaoh, tell him to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses and Aaron needed to buckle up because it wasn't going to work for a while. And that was on purpose. And we've heard language like this before, but it's reiterated that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh will not listen to them, and God will bring out the people by acts of great judgment. And the Egyptians shall know the name of Yahweh. So God has purposes for this tyrant that do not involve his salvation. And we'll think more about that concept next week, but for now, we have to keep moving. In one corner, we've got Pharaoh, the self-proclaimed manifestation of the gods, the enslaver and killer, the mocker of the one true God, the one who lives however he wants at cost to generations of tortured human souls. In the other corner, come walking very slowly, an 80-year-old and an 83-year-old, until just recently scared out of their wits, and yet somehow clothed in immense power for which they can take absolutely no credit. And this showdown was emblematic of a principle that's displayed throughout Scripture, that God opposes the proud, but exalts, gives grace to the humble. The most powerful man in the world at that time was trying his hardest to live like a God and to be revered as a God. Moses had embraced obscurity, and now he finds himself truly representing God Almighty. So this is a contrast that goes back to the the very beginning when our first parents reached for a fruit that the serpent said would make them like God. And only after God covered their subsequent shame, then they would get a glimpse of how humanity truly could be united with the divine. And this is also a contrast that goes forward to the very end as a man of lawlessness exalts himself above the God of gods but is withstood by those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb and have conquered through the Spirit of God dwelling within them. So Moses and Aaron, they're walking freely, heads held high into Pharaoh's court, and this is a reminder to us of how humanity was created to rule. We are not God, but we are empowered by the true God. We are little kings and queens. We are created in the image of God, and we are being conformed to the image of the one true king, Jesus Christ. And that is a very lofty role, to reign and to rule with Christ. That is the purpose for which you were made. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Moses and Aaron are uh, able to get started even when they're so old, even at this advanced age. They are still representing God. They are still walking in his purposes. And maybe some of you older folks are tempted to think that God has already done whatever he's going to do with you. I hope that this passage helps you to realize that if you're submitted to God, then this year could be the start of something brand new, some effort that you never expected. Maybe it's through your relationships or your words or your prayers or some act of service. I don't know. 
but I hope you don't buy into the lie that you've just earned the right to live comfortably and selfishly because you're tired and discouraged. D.L. Moody once said that Moses spent the first third of his life in Pharaoh's palace thinking that he was somebody. He spent the second third of his life in Midian learning that he was nobody. And then Moses spent the last third of his life showing what God can do with a somebody who's learned that he's a nobody. So I hope you take that to heart, and I hope that you ask God to set you on a new course of service to him, just as he did for Moses. Now, rulers in the ancient world, they carried scepters or rods of some type. And you may have seen pictures of an Egyptian sarcophagus where there's a golden image of Pharaoh holding this this crook and flail. I think we have a picture of that to show you. Um, So one of those represents defense of the sheep, And then the other one represents punishing wrongdoers. So likewise, we're going to see that the sorcerers of Egypt had their own staffs. And that was just how authority was represented in those days, by something, some rod that you held. So when Moses shows up with his own rod, which actually had been used on sheep, that would have been very, very offensive to Pharaoh and to these religious leaders and and powerful state leaders. And the offense would only increase from there because then when Pharaoh asks them to prove themselves, how do they use those staffs? They don't use them to like make a rainbow across the the throne room. They don't use them to make someone levitate or create some magic food. No. Uh, And and I'll just pause here and say that we need to keep in mind that that this rod that Aaron was using, uh, the rod itself is not some sort of magic wand, right? You should think of it instead as representing the word of God and the power of God. So people needed to see the power of God's words and this rod, this visible rod, serves that purpose. And the message that God is going to speak through this rod that that was originally Moses's and now Aaron is using it, the message God speaks through it is nothing less than I am the supreme power and Pharaoh is impotent by comparison. Well, how do we get that message? Because the first thing the rod does is create a serpent. Now, the serpent was of particular importance to the Egyptian pharaohs. On the front of Pharaoh's golden crown was a cobra raised for attack. We've got an image of that, too. So their creator's son god, Amun-Ra, was also believed to take the form of a snake. And so this emblem was a symbol of Pharaoh's divinity and his power. So then when Aaron came and he cast down his staff and he becomes a serpent, of course Pharaoh has to summon his sorcerers and magicians. They have to show, no, 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 snakes are the domain of Pharaoh. Okay? And they do produce multiple snakes. Which, uh, let's pause here and just address the elephant in the room. Like, producing snakes? What's going on? Is this Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets? In the ancient world, every court of power, every king uh, or emperor had, uh, for millennia, they utilized sorcerers, magicians, sages, wise men, or magi. And the domain of those guys was, it included some math and science, um, as well as some astrology, spells, prophecies, or occult practices. Now, you can either dismiss that and say, well, there's nothing to such tomfoolery. It only goes to show the ignorance of the ancients. 
you know, those some, same ancients who developed intricate languages and lost systems and those same ancients who built wonders of the world without tools and we still don't understand how they did it. Those ancients, yeah, they were, they were either ignorant pretenders or maybe there was actually demonic power behind certain wonders that were being accomplished. And the Bible suggests that that is, in fact, the case. And I might suggest that if you were to get out more and catch a glimpse behind the curtain of certain cultures in Asia or Africa or South America, this wouldn't be so hard to believe. Because in those contexts, Satan has everything to gain by attracting people away from the gospel message and binding them fast to pagan practices by just giving them a simple show of power. Happens all the time. And actually, this is increasingly true even with the emergence of Wicca in Europe and North America. And such was certainly the case in ancient Egypt. So we've got these magicians, and each man casts down his staff, and it becomes a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallows their staffs. In Egyptian culture, the act of swallowing had great importance. It meant that you were absorbing the power of something or that you were easily destroying it. So imagine with me, like, just think about what message this sends. Imagine if you walk into the Oval Office and you grab a bald eagle and you stab it through the throat. Or imagine you walk into the Kremlin with your dog. It's, a, it's like an attack dog. You let it loose and it goes for the throat of Vladimir Putin's pet dog whose name is Buffy, by the way. My, my point is that there'd be no confusion about what message is being sent, right? Except that it wasn't Moses' pet snake that was swallowing the snakes. It, it's the rod of Yahweh. It's God. It's his power that's doing it. So it's very important to note in verse 12, it does not say Aaron's snake swallowed the Egyptian snakes. It says that the rod swallowed their rods. So the whole point is the rod, the, the symbol of power, that the true God puts the power of Pharaoh to shame. And there are times when it pleases God to overtly display his dominance over false gods and demonic powers. You can think of Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal. Or you can think of a lot of stuff that happened in the book of Daniel where these guys had to make decisions. No, we're going to reject um, the food of idols. We're going to spurn the threats that if we don't worship these idols, they're going to throw us in fire or feed us to lions. They made a stand and there was a showdown that happened. And faithful showdowns like that still happen today on the front lines of evangelism and global missions. But the greatest display of Yahweh's utter superiority to his enemies was the cross of Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning demons and those they control, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So Christians, we are meant to live like we're on the winning side, because we are. And, and that's not in a sense of gloating, right? But it's in the sense of an unshakable, quiet confidence. I love the lyrics to A Mighty Fortress that say, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. 
maybe you've been exposed to some dark powers at some point. Um, you should know that there are plenty of people who have come to Christ out of pagan backgrounds or out of witchcraft or out of straight-up Satan worship because our gospel is that powerful. It is powerful to wash away all darkness and set us free. And I'll share a true story that always makes me smile. I, uh, I had a friend in college who was a brand new Christian. Like he'd only been a believer for a matter of weeks. He knew next to nothing about the Bible or about walking with God. And he happened to walk by one of those occult shops. And the fortune teller was actually standing outside and um, she was trying to drum up business. So she's like, hey, give me your hand. And, you know, he's just like, is this some sort of, you know, cheap trick or joke? He plays along. But as she examines the, the lines on his hand, suddenly she shrieks and drops it and she starts to shuffle away and she says, you're a Christian. So my point is that we can trust that the rod of our God will swallow the rods of his enemies every time. But at this point, hard-hearted Pharaoh refuses to accept the truth that this rod contest pointed out. So there would be ten plagues to hammer home the message. And we need to talk about these plagues. We'll see only the first of them here in chapter 7. Next week we're going to look at chapters 8 through 10. So if you have a chance during this week, I really encourage you to get familiar with that content. All of chapters 8 through 10 because we're not going to have time to look at all of those verses, to have them read out loud uh, next Sunday. But we will address the content of those three chapters. But as a way of introduction to all the plagues, I want you to see there is an order to them. There are three sets of three, and then there's a tenth plague, which is kind of like a final knockout punch. Um, in the cycles of three, the first, so the, the first plague, the fourth, the seventh, they are all introduced when Moses meets Pharaoh somewhere in the morning. Um, unexpectedly to Pharaoh. You got to think he, he started to get paranoid like whenever he went out in the morning. Um, so that's, the, that's three of the plagues. And then the second, fifth, and eighth plague, they occur after Moses presents himself in Pharaoh's court. And then for the third, sixth, and ninth plague, Moses doesn't see Pharaoh at all, but he performs some sign to initiate the plague. So he strikes the dust of the earth, or he throws soot from the brick kiln into the air, or he stretches out his hand to heaven. So all to say there's great intentionality and, and structure, order to this. It's, the timing is very precise and everyone would have seen the cause and effect relationship. Another word about the plagues, they are purposely shaming various Egyptian gods. In chapter 12, verse 12, it explicitly says that Yahweh was executing judgments on the gods of Egypt. By one count, Egypt had more than 500 deities. So there were gods associated with frogs, gods associated with warding off swarms of flies or lice, gods associated with making farming flourish or protecting livestock or healing skin diseases or boils. There were gods who were in charge of storms, preserving crops. There were gods who um, should have been able to turn the winds and protect against locusts. There was uh, the supreme deity, Amun-Ra, the sun god. He would be directly spat upon with the ninth plague, um, with three days of deep darkness, a darkness one could feel. So where were the gods of Egypt? They were impotent. They were put to open shame. 
these powers and these resources that were trusted in to be able to protect and preserve Egypt, they are specifically targeted by Yahweh, as will be also the things that you trust in instead of him. Many of us this week in life groups, we looked at Hosea chapter 5, where God is telling his idolatrous people that he will be to them like a moth, like dry rot, like a lion that tears. So it'll start to go poorly in that relationship that you're banking on for your whole happiness. It'll go sour in that venture that promises to give you the success that you worship. It will depress you when that hobby or possession or activity that you obsess over begins to feel empty. Or if we want a specific Mother's Day example, if you worship your role as mother and need that to define you and make you happy, he will wreck you and allow that very idolatry to begin to warp you and push your own kids away. Our God takes away Our God exposes our brokenness. He does this because he is gracious and because he wants nothing to come in the way of us knowing his greatness, his beauty, his all-sufficiency. And so the plagues of Exodus were designed to utterly expose the emptiness of Egyptian religion. Beginning with the Nile, now, the, the chief deity associated with the Nile was Hopi, who was pictured as a hermaphrodite. And um, Hopi was the god of fertility. It's even possible that Pharaoh was going to do a morning ritual to Hopi when he was approaching the river and Moses confronted him. Uh, also, the god Kunim was pictured as a human with a ram's head. He was supposed to be the protector of the Nile. And also there was Osiris, the god of the underworld. It was said that the water of the Nile was actually his lifeblood causing Egypt to flourish. And so notice the irony and the mockery that's going on here on several levels because Osiris' blood becomes actual blood. And also, yes, it it was Yahweh showing his dominion through this plague, but he was doing it through Moses, the man who had been saved from the power of the Nile, was now claiming power over the Nile. And blood was a fitting visual for all of Egypt to remember what they did to the Israelite male babies at Pharaoh's command, drowning them in the Nile. Do you remember that command? It was to all of his people, Pharaoh said, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. So this first plague is simply pointing out the fact that the Egyptians themselves had very much made their own river a place of bloodshed. And verse 17 says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Make no mistake, Yahweh is a God of fearsome justice. And he is a God who remembers his people and the brutalities against them. If you are at all oppressed and for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, this is a great, great comfort. In the end, we will all either be found by faith among the humble sufferers who are vindicated or we will drink the cup of our own making to our own horror. In verse 20, we read, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. 
and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And back in verse 19, it said that this was also over the tributaries and canals, the ponds, the pools of water, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So the idea is that any exposed water was turned into blood. But if you dug new wells, you could get to water because it wasn't God's intention to, for all of Egypt to just die of thirst right then, only to be stunned and horrified and inconvenienced to the point of desperation. And verse 25 says, seven full days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. That is certainly enough time to convince them that they weren't dreaming. They would remember this catastrophe for generations to come. Ever since the 1800s, there have been scholars who want to keep the Bible around for sentimental reasons, but who want to make it compatible with our secular sentimentalities. And, and, and so um, theories emerge to somehow explain that these plagues occurred as a freak cycle of quite natural phenomenon. And there may be some credibility to some patterns that they've noticed. God certainly does use natural forces most of the time to accomplish his ends. And we see this even in, in chapter 10. We'll read that the Lord brought a severe east wind to drive an unprecedented number of locusts into the land. He, didn't, he could have, but he didn't just make the locusts appear out of nowhere. He used a strong wind to drive them into the land. So he does use natural means much of the time. But if you've read any of these schemes about the plagues, uh, where they're all perfectly explainable natural phenomena, um, like, like excessive red sent, uh, sediment in the water for the blood. Those explanations never quite work, especially when you get to the later plagues. And certainly they don't work without softening the language or the description of what happened. They don't work without discounting that the Bible says that these things happened in exact response to Moses and his words and actions. So I just want to stress this doesn't say that the river became like blood. It says that the, the river became blood. And honestly, that shouldn't be hard for us to believe if we believe that there's a God overall. He made it all, and he can decreate as he pleases until the chaos of our environment comes to match the inner chaos of our false worship. That's what's going on here. So if we don't believe that God has power to do that, well then, I mean, he, he certainly wouldn't be able to bring about a virgin birth or rise from the dead either. We don't look for sources outside the Bible to validate what the Bible says before we believe it. That would show that our faith is not in God, but our faith is instead in the collective intellect of um, only the current generation of people. And if that's what you trust in, then you're not a Christian, you're a humanist. And if that's you today, I pray that God will reveal himself to you in a way that kind of jars you out of those presuppositions. But even while we don't rely on outside verification, in this case, there is a very interesting ancient Egyptian papyrus that's been discovered. It's called the Admonitions of Ipuer. Um, and this document is incomplete, but from the fragments, they can tell that it's a lament for an Egypt that has experienced unparalleled disaster. And it says, this is a quote, blood is everywhere. Indeed, the river is blood, yet men drink of it. Men shrink from human beings and thirst after water. And a scholar from the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology writes that researchers simply don't know the original dating for this document, and the latter end of the date spectrum may indeed align with the events of Exodus. Both documents complement each other so well. 
a river that became blood, pestilence, crops, livestock, buildings devastated, fire and darkness, well-born offspring dying, lame duck magicians, slaves pillaging the riches of masters, and a shepherding people whose initial presence in the land culminated in cataclysm. And this archaeologist concludes, how could this not refer to the same event? End quote. So whether that's the case or not, I hope that you'll at least see that even today's experts know very little about the ancient world. And I hope you'll realize how specific and incomparable and authoritative the Bible really is. These things happened. And they happened in part so that you would come to terms with God today. Well, next in verse 22, the magicians make another appearance. They, quote, did the same with their secret arts. So apparently they took some clean water from a recently dug well and they're able to turn a bucket of it, a bucket of it into blood. Um, but is that really what Pharaoh needed? I mean, if you're trying to show the, the supremacy of your gods over Yahweh, why not ask the magicians to turn the blood back into water? <laughs> um, but they, they can't do that. Um, so even though this is a paltry imitation, it is enough to keep Pharaoh's heart hardened, and the scene closes without much resolution. It says, Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He did not even take this to heart. Pharaoh, in the context of the rest of the Bible, would come to represent all forms of external opposition to the people of God. And the amount of space that's given to these judgments on Egypt, I mean, we have to pay attention to that. These are 11 chapters of Exodus. And it goes to show the significance of this theme in the purposes of God. It shows that God doesn't want us to be left with any doubt that his patience with human opposition does have a limit. There is a time when the warnings stop and action will be taken. God doesn't let the proud ones of the earth try to stomp out his people forever. God does not let false worship claim dominance over mankind without end. He will cut down the arrogant, violent ones. He will expose idolatry and all concepts of self-sufficiency for the horror that they actually are. And when we see clearly this God, the God who exposes his enemies, it honestly should send a shiver down our spines. And it should cause us to ask, am I on the right terms with this God? The Bible is clear that no one, no Egyptian or Israelite in that day, and no one from any background today has worshipped God rightly or has honored his image in mankind as we ought to. Now, we may not physically enslave and murder, but we do so in the intentions of our hearts. We may not worship Hopi or Osiris or Amun-Ra, but we worship our 21st century American idols of power and wealth and pleasure and unfettered individual expression. And one day, we're going to be shown the vanity and the ugliness of these influences. Will it be too late? In the book of Revelation, we see cycles of worldwide judgment that seem to be intensified rifts on the plagues of Egypt because God will not let tyranny and empty abomination go unchecked forever. And so in Revelation 6, we, we read the, the final seal judgment that the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? And who can stand? The next chapter, Revelation 7, gives us the answer. It shows us a glimpse of the fullness of the people of God, sealed by his spirit, a great multitude that no one could number from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. And we're told that these are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Turn to the true king and deliverer, Jesus Christ, who has already put the powers of this world to open shame at the cross. The God who swallows his enemies has opened a way wherein your plagues were absorbed by another. So as you trust in him, as you walk with him, you will see the lesser sources of life that others rely on, that you used to rely on. You will see those things fill up with death. And that's shocking, and that's often disturbing. And we, like the Israelites, should bow our heads and worship because his dominance over all tyrants and over all objects of false worship is very, very good news. Our great God, we do bow our heads and worship you. We acknowledge your supremacy over anything else we would be inclined to worship. We acknowledge your power over all the rulers and religious authorities in this world. Lord, you have put them to open shame at the cross. And one day, everyone in all of creation will see it and acknowledge it. Lord, I ask that in our own hearts, when we see catastrophe, when we experience catastrophe, we would know your holiness, we would trust your purposes, and we would look to Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen.